Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points and miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. This is The Secret Life of Canada, a podcast about the country you know and the stories you don't. Hey, Phelan. Hey, Leah. So this song is called Juti, and the clip you're watching is of a sister dance duo named Nachiye. They're performing a traditional folk dance from Punjab. It's called Gidya. This is how we should start every episode, with celebratory music and dancing. I agree, although, you know, I don't know if it would work for all the sad episodes we've done, so... Right. Yeah, uh, good point, good point. You're right, though, that it feels celebratory, though, because this was the anniversary celebration of the oldest South Asian market in Canada, Vancouver's Punjabi Market. It was the first and biggest little Indian neighborhood in North America, and the first to have Punjabi language street signs outside of Asia, which makes a lot of sense because according to Stats Canada, Punjabi is one of the most common languages that's spoken in BC other than English and French. I mean, it makes sense that the oldest South Asian market would be in Vancouver then. How old is it? Like. I think back to the episodes that we did, you know, on the oldest Chinatown in Canada, the one in Victoria, and it's over 150 years old. So are we looking at a similar time frame? No, not at all. The Punjabi market is only 50 years old. Oh, that's that just feels really young in market years. It does, right? Because it's true. Markets are like tortoises. They can live for hundreds of years. But you know what? Don't let that young 50 year old market fool you. The South Asian community has been in BC and Vancouver well before that. So to understand why the market formed when it did and why it's so young, we need to go back into the early history of South Asian people in Canada, which is full of twists and turns. And you'll love this, a plot to overthrow the British monarchy. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, I, I mean, I was already in, but I'm I'm more in now for sure. I knew you would be. <laughs> to understand more about this, I called up Naveen Gurn. He's one of the hosts of a South Asian and Vancouver history podcast called The Nameless Collective, which I'm a big fan of. And, you know, Naveen and I did nerd out over the two shows coming together. We were very excited. When I was a kid, one of my favorite cartoons was crossover cartoons, so like when the Jetsons met the Flintstones. That was one of my iconic ones. I was like, oh my God, the world's colliding. This is so cool. And now I get to be on your podcast, which is my own version of Jetsons meeting the Flintstones. So thank you for that. Oh my gosh, that is such a great analogy. I feel the same because I feel... I love this. Okay, you both sound thrilled to be talking to each other. I, I love when history, history nerds unite um, and you collide for a very nerdy conversation. <laughs> I loved it. And I learned a lot of things that helped me to understand the history behind the Punjabi market. So my first question is, when did South Asian people first start coming to Canada? It was the 1890s. And the first to arrive here were six from the Punjab region. That's sick, spelled S-I-K-H. 
I remember mispronouncing sick as seek for a long time. Yeah, I did that too. There are a lot of English speakers that did and probably still do, but we got it wrong. It's Sikh. The Sikh faith was founded over 500 years ago in Punjab. Today, there are more than 25 million Sikhs around the globe, making Sikhism the fifth largest religion in the world. That's right. And in 1897, a group of Sikh soldiers who were with the Hong Kong military passed through Canada on the way to England. They were traveling to Queen Victoria's Diamond Jubilee. The next South Asian visit to Canada was in 1902. Due to India being a British colony, England had managed to get Sikh soldiers to join their military. So again, some of these soldiers made a pit stop in Canada on their way to England for another British royalty thing. This time, it was an event for a guy named Edward VII who was getting kinged or crowned, as they say. Okay, right. So he's the guy who actually gave up the throne to his brother so he could marry a divorcee, which was... Very scandalous at the time. No, no, no. That was a different Edward. Oh. The Edward I'm talking about was the grandfather of the Edward you're talking about. They need to switch up this royal name thing because it gets so confusing. Agreed. But this event, this granddad of the (laughs) Edward that you're talking about was a big deal for England and its colonies. And that's how this next group of six soldiers came here. Naveen told me the story. There's always been this idea of this oral history that exists of um, six soldiers who were traveling across Canada to go to a a coronation ceremony in England. Uh, And as they saw Canada roll in front of them and the the warm welcome they were receiving, they they wrote letters back to India, specifically the Punjab area, to say, hey, Canada's a great place. There's plenty of land. Let's come over. Okay, so these sick men wrote back home, and people in Punjab said, okay, these guys say Canada sounds good, so we're going to try it. Something like that. In 1903, 10 Punjabi immigrants land in B.C. Five went to Victoria. The other five head out to Vancouver. Around a year later, 30 men had arrived. And the ones that came, they ended up setting up near the area of the Punjabi market. No, not even close. That's the strange thing. The market is in South Vancouver, which is really just on the outskirts of the city. Naveen told me that when the men came, many started to settle in the northern part of Vancouver. I'm like, on the opposite end? <laughs> yes. They they ended up in a neighborhood called Kitsilano. Which is very um, striking from when, when you tell people now because they're like, Kitsilano used to be a South Asian area. Uh, but when you look at the old land documents, it'll have names of of Caucasian settlers who owned property, and then I'll say something like Hindu, Hindu, Hindu. And even later on, it'll say something like Sikh Temple. And that Kitsilano area was nearby the lumber mills where the South Asian community worked. Okay, so many of the men who came over to BC ended up working in lumber. Yeah, and not only in Vancouver, you know, they, they went all over BC in places like Abbotsford and other areas. But In Vancouver specifically, people gravitated to the Kitsilano area. And when you read up on what the area was like at this time period, it makes sense. It's described as a a really dense, beautiful forest. Here's what you should also know about Kitsilano. Kitsilano is an anglicized version of Katsilano. The area was named after August Jack Katsilano, who was a chief of the Squamish people, and he was born in the village of Jue Jue. 
After Canada took the land, the village was destroyed. The people were made to leave Zwayzway, and it was renamed Stanley Park. Among other things Katsalano worked on was recording settlement and the stories of his people. He recounted stories about when Zwayzway was taken. Katsalano remembers being a child in the 1880s and how he and his family were in their house having a meal. They heard a noise, like something big was hitting the house. And in his words, We all get up and go outside, see what's the matter. My sister, Louise, she was only one talk a little English. She goes out, asks white men, what's he doing that for? The man say, we're surveying the road. My sister asks him, whose road? Eventually, Katsalano and his people were forcibly moved out of the area onto the Kitsilano Indian Reserve. 36 years later, the BC government yet again forced the Squamish people to leave. They forced them off the reserve lands because the city of Vancouver wanted to expand. There's a book that he worked on called Conversations with Katsalano that is really extraordinary. It's a look into the area now known as Vancouver. And you can find maps of trails that he drew from memory, uh, the original place names all through the area now known as Kitsilano. When South Asian men landed in Kitsilano, they started working in the timber and farming industry, and they made the best of it. The pay wasn't great. Often they were paid less than their white counterparts as white labor was considered to be of higher value. The men lived together to save money. You know, people lived in these structures called bunkhouses, you know, seven to eight people living in one structure, you know, sharing food, sharing your literature at night, sharing the poetry, um, and, and living together and making a life together. By 1906, the South Asian population started to really increase, and so the provincial government started getting worried. Worried that these workers were considering staying. The men began facing harassment, and you can see this in the papers at the time, a lot of anti-Asian sentiment in articles. Years later, things came to a head when the Vancouver riots of 1907 occurred. Rioters targeted Chinatown and Japantown. Both were areas that South Asian people frequented. And if you want to hear more about that, you can check out our episode called Where is Japantown? Yeah, it was a really bad year because 1907 was also the same year that South Asian people were denied the vote in B.C. What's more, federal law stated that if you couldn't vote in the provincial election, then you couldn't vote in the federal election either. So, so no, no voting for you. B.C. Premier William Bowser introduced the legislation that would disenfranchise all natives of India, not of Anglo-Saxon parents. So not good. But the community in Kitsilano came together that same year in 1907 and built Canada's first gudwara. For those who don't know what a gudwara is, it's a temple, and the word translates to the doorway to the guru. The temple was called the Second Avenue Gudwara. I think more things should just be named the street name, you know? Yeah. So you can always find it. Well, yeah, maybe I'd be able to find my way around Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, so was this space, was it specifically for sick people? It was a Sikh temple, but Hindus and Muslims also gathered there. It's long gone now, but, you know, the way Naveen describes it at the time, it sounds like it was bustling. There was an energy. He's part of a group that does walking tours. We go in the area where the Sikh temple used to be and we say, reimagine the street, reimagine the 
the voices that you still may be able to, be able to hear where people wake up in the morning, uh, go down to the mills, come back again, uh, go to the temple on the weekend. What songs would you hear? What voices would you hear? What language would you hear if you do that? And so that Kitsilano area uh, was uh, the main center for the South Asian community, I would say. The temple became a space to also plan and strategize how to push back against the Canadian government and their anti-Asian policies. In 1908, Canada was in a bind because the government wanted to prevent South Asian people from arriving, but legally couldn't do it because they were all British subjects. Right. I, I love this. You you love it? <laughs> well, I mean, it's really, they couldn't stop them, right? Like, it's like, mm-hmm. it's like a double colonization. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're like, oh, wait, no, we take it back. Like, we wait, we, <sighs> but we can't, but we, oh, God, no, yeah. my brain is breaking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There was no Canadian citizenship at this time. It was just British and British citizens from overseas that had no barrier to entry into Canada. But because they were South Asians, they really wanted to prevent their entry into Canada. So Canada found a workaround and implemented the Continuous Journey Regulation. It was a regulation that denied entry to anyone who did not take a direct route to Canada. This is so, this is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. So, for instance, the rule was if you set sail, because remember, you're on a boat at this time. If you set sail from, say, Japan or India, you would have to stop somewhere to get more supplies. There was no ship that could do that long of a journey at the time without stopping. And so if it stopped, it meant Canada didn't have to let you in. This regulation was also used in the 20s and 30s to prevent Jewish people from coming here. They also arbitrarily decided that Asian immigrants had to have $200 to get into Canada, which was a lot at the time, right? But European immigrants only had to have $20. Yes, I'm not great at math, but I know that $200 is much more than $20. It is. (laughs) Very good. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They, They cemented how terrible they were by also preventing Punjabi women and children under the age of 18 from immigrating. So they really were trying to separate families, make it as uncomfortable for these men as possible to spend time here. For a time, it was actually effective at slowing immigration. There's a large influx of immigration that happens up until 1914, World War I. It stops very sharply and many people go back to India because uh, they want to be involved in freedom movements or because they're angered by the racist backlash they've had in Canada or for a variety of other reasons. As people came together at the 2nd Avenue Gurdwara, they agreed on a couple things. They wanted to ease the restrictions placed on them in Canada. And they had an even bigger want, though. Independence. They wanted to end British rule in India and overthrow the crown. Oh, now this is getting juicy. (laughs) Yeah, this is, it's going to get good. There was this printing press for the Indian independence movement, this paper called the Hindustani that was printed in Chinatown, uh, 512 Main Street in Chinatown. Uh, and there was a, a man who was the, the, the creator, the editor, Hussein Rahim, who lived in Chinatown there too. The free Hindustan slogan on the front page read, resistance to tyranny is obedience to God. It, it makes sense that they organized at the Gudwara because it would be a safe place. Yes, please read the opening sentences on the front page. A strong protest against British injustice at Vancouver, B.C. The natives of Hindustan held a mass meeting on March 22nd to protest against the unjust treatment of the Dominion and home governments. 
The meeting was largely attended by all classes of people, but no white man was present. This anti-colonial sentiment was also happening in the States, and a group was formed in 1913 called the Hindu Association of the Pacific Coast. They also had a paper that made its way up to Vancouver. The paper was called Godar. Please take a read at what was printed in the very first issue. Wanted. Brave soldiers to stir up rebellion in India. Pay, death. Prize, martyrdom. Pension, liberty. Field of battle, India. Okay, so they weren't messing around. They were not messing around. And then the Komagata Maru happened. The events that unfolded around the Komagata Maru was a flashpoint between South Asians and Canadians. When the boat arrived, immigration officials used the continuous journey regulation as an excuse to not let people off the ship. The people on the boat were trapped for eight weeks. They refused to leave because they were British subjects and technically were supposed to be allowed entry into Canada. Yeah, they wouldn't even let them off the boat. So the South Asian people on the ground organized a defense. They hired a lawyer. They tried to get supplies to the people on the ship because they started to starve. But immigration officials here in Vancouver blocked food and water. Officials raided the ship in the middle of the night in an attempt to force the people to leave. The passengers fought back, but eventually it was just too much. They had been in limbo for two months, and so they left without ever disembarking. When they finally got back to India, the British government had police waiting for them. They considered them rebels against the British Empire, and police began shooting as people got off the boat onto land for the first time in months. And in Vancouver, two leaders in the community who had challenged both Canada's immigration policies and its treatment of people on the Komagata Maru were killed when an informant for Canadian immigration, a man named Bila Singh, walked into the Gurdwara and opened fire. Bila Singh had been working undercover for the Inspector of Immigration, a man by the name of W.C. Hopkinson. Singh later admitted that one of his tasks for the immigration office was to translate copies of the newspaper Godar into English so that they could be sent on to the governments of Canada and England. Head Inspector Hopkinson, the man who had hired Bila Singh, was a linchpin in the Canadian and British efforts to surveil Indian political activists. The inspector was well known to Vancouver's South Asian community as being corrupt, discriminatory, and for making threats. He constantly harassed people and tried to bribe men to get them to turn into informants. One of these men was named Miwa Singh. Just two months after the Komagata Maru sailed from Vancouver, Miwa shot and killed Inspector Hopkinson at the Vancouver courthouse. Miwa Singh did not resist arrest, and at his trial spoke about the pressure Hopkinson had put on him and others, and of the effects that the shooting inside the Gurdwara had on the community. He told the courtroom in part, You as Christians, would you think there was any more good left in your church if you saw people shot down and killed in it? And... I know I have shot Hopkinson and will have to die. On January 11th, Miwa Singh was executed in New Westminster. Hundreds of Sikhs stood and waited for his body, which they took on procession throughout the city. Miwa Singh's death has often been commemorated by the Sikh community in the years since he was executed. And in 2020, New Westminster declared January 11th Miwa Singh Day. 102 years later, Canada apologized for the events surrounding the Komagata Maru. 
Today I rise in this House to offer an apology on behalf of the Government of Canada for our role in the Komagata Maru incident. Navigating the travel world doesn't have to be complicated. Whether you want to hack your points in miles, figure out where to travel next, or you just need advice on an ethical dilemma. I'm Aislinn Green, host of Unpacked by Afar. And in the brand new season, we are unpacking the most captivating and challenging topics in the travel industry, one conversation at a time. Topics like the sexiness of travel insurance and the perils of quote-unquote bad tourism, and even the secrets to flying with children and not losing your mind in the process. Listen to Unpacked by Afar wherever you get your podcasts. The marginalization of South Asians in Canada continued for a really long time. Between 1914 and 1920, only one South Asian family member was allowed into Canada. By 1921, finally, some Punjabi women were allowed to come to Canada, which, no surprise, was also the same year the first Indo-Canadian child was born. All through the 20s and into the 40s, South Asian people really struggled to get recognized by Canada. There were so many efforts to get the laws changed and, and to get the vote. By the 40s, when World War II broke out, some in the South Asian community and the Chinese community took a no-vote, no-war stance. Yeah, they were like, why are we fighting for you if we can't even vote here? Finally, though, in 1947, a politician in Victoria named Percival Edward George passed a resolution to allow South Asians the right to vote. It was almost a unanimous vote, except one person voted no because the resolution was not extended to First Nations people. It would not be until 1960s that First Nations people could vote without losing their status. In 1962, the Inuit would be sent ballot boxes. They actually got the vote in 1950, uh, but it took until 1962 for the government to send boxes so their votes could actually be counted, which seems like an important part of the puzzle there. That's a piece of it, yeah. In many Indigenous communities still, this is something that we still see occurring. It's really there's always issues with elections um, in our communities. If there were still disenfranchised people in 1960, that means no man could really call himself a prime minister because not everyone voted for you. You know, like until everyone got the vote, you can't say that you were prime minister of this country. By that, that would make John Diefenbaker. Uh, he would have been the first uh, prime minister of Canada. But yes, it was the 60s. And that's where we started seeing, you know, real change in the immigration policies. They weren't perfect by any means, but starting in and around 1967, immigration from South Asian countries increased dramatically, like not just from Punjab, but all over the place. The Second Avenue Gurdwara was getting too small for this new wave of immigrants, and so it was decided that a new temple would be built, but not in Kitsilano, on the opposite side of the city, where they could get property. An architect by the name of Arthur Erickson was hired to build it. Now the community grows, they want a new space, and they get Arthur Erickson to create this Gurdwara down in South Vancouver. And as he does that, the community moves to South Vancouver as well, too. And some people don't know this, but Vancouver and South Vancouver used to be two separate cities. And it wasn't until after World War II where they were amalgamated. But for the longest time, South Vancouver was kind of like a, a suburb of Vancouver. And so there was a lot of land there, a lot of space. And so when immigrants were coming in the 70s and 80s, they moved into the South Vancouver area and they congregated around that Ross Street Temple, which became a hub for the South Asian community. So the Gudwara was there, the community was there. 
And it was only a matter of time before the, uh, the Punjabi market grew up there, too. So the community is really starting to take shape. That's right. By 1969, Sucha Sinclair arrives in Vancouver from London. He looks around for a place to open his sari and fabric store, and he arrives at the Ross Street Temple and decides this is a good area to open a business, you know, in and around where the temple is. He didn't know it, but by opening his business, he would start what we now know as the Punjabi market. To learn more, I spoke to Gulzar Nanda. My name is Gulzar Nanda. I'm the chair of the Punjabi Market Collective. My pronouns are he, him. Uh, I'm also an entrepreneur with a business in, in the Punjabi market. The reason it exists where it is now is because uh, there is a gentleman by the name of Sucha Sinclair, and he had just come from Southall in, in, in England. And there, there had already been, you know, little India's popping up, and especially in Southall. And he was inspired by what he saw. And he noticed that, hey, since there's a Gurdwara that's opening up here in this southern part of the city, maybe we should open up some South Asian um, uh, businesses that cater to this community. Uh, and that was uh, his store, Sean Sari's, opened on May 31st, 1970. And it was the beginning of the Punjabi market. Um, soon after, maybe like a few years later, uh, there were a number of stores. And uh, a decade after that, it was, it was the Punjabi market as we know it today. The thing that I love about Little India or Chinatown or Little Italy, you know, these neighborhoods, they cater to everyone. It's very, very true. I, I've heard that so many times when talking about this episode, but also I know it to be true because you find that one store that can just offer you a little bit of all over the world. There were uh, members from the Ismaili community who had shops in the market. There was members from the Punjabi community, of course. There were Punjabi Hindus who had spaces in that area. The Fijian community had, had um, shops there too. The African community from Kenya, Uganda as well too. So there were a lot of different communities that had uh, spaces there and, and buildings there and, and felt welcome in those spaces. There were stories of people who would come from Calgary, from Edmonton, and drive down from those cities down to Vancouver, whether it's for the, the Nagarkirtan or for other events, and go shopping in the market because it was one of, these, one of the only places in Canada at that time to be able to get things like you know Indian clothes, Indian food, Indian pots and pans, decorations for a house. It was such a central place for so many, and Gulzar has fond memories of growing up there in the 90s. He now runs the jewelry store that his parents opened in the market when they moved to Canada. Yeah, so my family's been in the jewelry business for five generations. I'm the fifth generation jeweler. And I like to say that we were in the jewelry business before India existed. Baller. <laughs> yeah. I mean, five generations of jewelry makers, one would think. I just imagine him decked out in lots of watches. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember my mom telling me all the time that, hey, there's people coming from all over. I think one of the most interesting things was folks who worked in uh, the farms that surround sort of the lower mainland. Every couple of weeks, what they'd do is they'd rent a bus, uh, like a school bus, like a yellow bus that you can imagine. And they'd all hop in and they'd all come to the Punjabi market. I love that. A bus, <laughs> a load of people coming in from out of town to get the right ingredients or, you know, maybe music, maybe clothes. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I love that school bus imagery. And there were also a lot of kids running around. They had the same sort of um, schedule as I did, where, you know, after school, we all went to Henderson, uh, John Henderson Elementary, and uh, you'd come to the market. And, um, and after 
a period of trying to help my parents and being asked to go play. Uh, I'd go out into the market and we'd meet up with some friends. And at that point, you know, you'd spend a few hours just roaming the market, going to different stores and there's playgrounds nearby, going to the playground. And uh, it was great, uh, especially in around the celebratory times in our community or around Diwali or Basaki. You can ask anybody in the Punjabi market collective um, and people who interact with us, hey, like, what do you feel about the Punjabi market, especially in relation to your childhood? And they would for sure share the exact same memories I have in terms of tone. Um, just a, just a, like an epitome of nostalgia, uh, a very good feeling, you know. The Punjabi market collective that he's talking about came together to galvanize not only the business owners in the market, but also the wider community. Many in the collective grew up there, and they're really the next generation of the market. They are a mixture of business owners, community members, and artists. Yeah, so the Punjabi market collective, it, the reason we came together was because in 2017, uh, there was a, a major development that was proposed uh, within the boundaries of the Punjabi market. Ah, uh, development. I feel like, you know, that is the through line in so many of our episodes. It's like something old and historically significant gets destroyed because of a Subway sandwich shop or or, or a nail salon or a Rexall or I don't know. I would not want to get my sandwich at a nail salon. I'm sure many do, actually. <laughs> I'm not going to judge that. It might be a nice combo business. Anyway, in this case, with the market, it was actually a proposal from the city of Vancouver for a six-story rental. City officials you know, went to the residents and said, you know, what do you think of this development? And because of that, the neighborhood started this kind of larger conversation to try and figure out what to do. The truth is really that the market had been in decline for quite some time. It wasn't like a flashpoint. Um, it wasn't like, hey, there's one day where you're like 100%, something has changed. It was a gradual shift. Like, if you ever walked through the Punjabi market from about 2008 to about 2015, it would it would be like a scene out of the western where it's like completely empty. There's like release signs everywhere, tumbleweeds just sort of strolling through the market. It was it was quite gray. Like the city of Vancouver has a sort of gray tone to it because it rains here all the time. But it was so infused with the market at that time that it was quite sad. What exactly happened? Well, the economy was bad. Vancouver became really expensive, as we all know, and many people started moving to Surrey, B.C. It was just a lot cheaper. A lot of the community also felt that the market was undervalued by the rest of the city. For years, people tried different things to get support. Different levels of the government would offer, you know, something, and then it would get pulled. So people felt ignored. And Gulzar told me that when they started to talk about the revitalization, a lot of the older folks in the community were very skeptical. When we started our work in 2017, uh, or 2017 to 2019, a lot of the feedback we were getting from members of the community was like, you guys can try whatever you want. It's not going to work because nobody cares. Okay, but are things changing? I think they are. The work that we're doing is the Punjabi Market Collective. I think that there is a bit of hope now. And it is really driving the collective to see people um, uh, once again, you know, really the cherishing the Punjabi market in, in our community here. So they were going to have a huge outdoor celebration for the 50th anniversary, but COVID happened. So they pivoted and did it online. Gulzard told me he didn't know what to expect, but people stepped up. The city of Vancouver stepped up. 
And you know, on on May 31st, uh, 2020, uh, the city of Vancouver it was turned orange. They turned lights on, you know, to to commemorate the anniversary of the Punjabi market. And you know, it was a very emotional moment for all of us that brought, put it together because we didn't know how it would be received. But I think at that point, we really realized, and it, there was an inkling of it before, but at that point, we really realized how many people really, really, you know, care about the Punjabi market and care about its future. The Secret Life of Canada was recorded in Jotjage, also known as Montreal, the territory of the Ginakahaga. And recorded in Toronto on the traditional lands of the Haudenosaunee, Wendat, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit. This episode was written, hosted, and produced by me, Leah Simone Bowen. And me, Phelan Johnson. Research assistance by Andrea Eidinger. Story editing by Yvette Nolan, with mixing and sound design by Braden Alexander. Special thanks to Rupal Shaw. Our logo is by Badawogan Illustration and Design. Our digital producer is Roshni Nair. Senior producer is Tina Verma. And Arif Narani is the director of CBC Podcasts. <laughs> For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.